One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There are situations in which people are just trying to exploit this trend, exploit a story, and it's gross, and we can all see it's gross, and like, cut it out. There are good reasons to make true crime. There are grayish reasons to make true crime. And then there are just bad reasons. And I'm going to include Up and Vanished in that in that category. Well, that makes sense to me. And I do not like turning these stories into T-shirts and walking tours. The commoditization of these tragedies really bothers me. And I think the zooming out thing that bothers me the most is I feel like this perpetuates viewing other people around us as characters. And when we do that, it has enormous political implications I think that this might help explain part of what we talked about in the first segment of the show. When you see people one-dimensionally, it is easier to ignore their suffering. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. One of our favorite things to do here at Pantsuit Politics is hit the road and bring the nuance to you in person. So here's the thing. We're already full for 2019, guys. So the reality is also we're filling up for 2022. So if you would like to book a live podcast or a workshop or a keynote address, please email Elise as soon as possible. We don't want to miss you and we're filling up for the next calendar year. So if you've been on the fence or you're thinking... Man, I would love to bring Beth and Sarah to this event. Don't wait. Don't procrastinate. Email Elise today.
Elise at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Another thing that you cannot procrastinate on because it is here, the first Democratic debates, Wednesday and Thursday night. Sarah will be on Instagram. I will be on Twitter. Sarah will probably pop over to Twitter some too. And we're going to be discussing things as it happens in real time. And then on Friday's show, we'll come back to give you our more digested thoughts about the first Democratic debates. But it's going to be exciting. We've been waiting for a long time. Even though we're still very far from the primary, there are going to be six of these. Let's not let any of that lessen our excitement. Okay, two things. I think that we should get on Instagram Live during the commercial breaks. How do you feel about that? Like, co-live. Yeah, that's fine. We can do that. People, look, we just planned that right now while you were listening. Okay, second thing. I think I would be a little more excited. I am excited, but it's like I see the six stretching out in front of me. I'm just, I'm having some trepidation. And I think what would help me is I need some themed snacks. Ooh, I love that idea. This community is up for that challenge. So I gave y'all the Dolly Parton theme, <laughs> the Dolly Parton walkout song per candidate. And so what I need in return from our community is some debate themed snacks. So they could be candidate specific snacks. If you have the 411 on, like, what's the candidate's favorite snacks are? Oh, they answered that. They answered their comfort food in the New York Times thing. But if you have some, like, if you have other ideas, hit us up on Instagram. I want to hear them. And you know, Sarah, that I love to cook. I specifically love to make appetizers. So I'm going to work on this. I'm excited about this concept. But what makes the debates for me is, like, the community aspect. I feel like I know so many people on Twitter personally because we watch debates together leading up to 2016. So I'm just excited. Come be my new friend. It's going to be great. And snacks are superior food because anything bite-sized tastes better because you don't have to work out containing all the flavors on your fork or all the hard work is done for you. There's no decisions to make about your bites. That's why they're superior food. I've thought a lot about this, as you could probably tell. So we have an exciting and jam-packed episode for you today. We're going to start by talking about what's going on at the border. I know many of you followed along as horrifying reporting came out over the weekend. We're going to do some compliments that touch on the situation in Oregon and what's happening with Iran. And then in our main segment, we will be talking true crime. We have all the things to say about true crime. And we'll end with what's on our mind outside of politics. Y'all also had all the things to say about true crime. We put out the call on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, and everybody had all the thoughts about the true crime trend. And so I can't wait to dive into that. But like we said, before we start, we're going to cover some news, particularly the, I mean, it's heartbreaking seems trite. Like it's not, that doesn't even cover it. It's just It's devastating reporting about the condition of migrant children, specifically in a detention center in Clint, Texas. We wanted to give you a little bit of background because as you read these stories and you hear, oh, it's lawyers are the only ones allowed in these facilities to check on the conditions because of a settlement. I mean, that's just it's kind of weird. It seems like there should be like a government agency (laughs) or a state agency in charge of enforcing these standards inside the detention centers holding children. But This came about from a 1997 case. It's called the Flores Agreement. So it started in 1985. Jenny Lissette Flores was an unaccompanied 15-year-old girl from El Salvador. She was apprehended by INS after illegally attempting to cross the Mexico-United States border. She was taken to a detention facility where she was held with adults of both sexes, was strip searched every single day and was told she would only be released to the custody of her parents, who INS suspected were illegal immigrants. 
So the Center for Human Rights and Constitutional Law filed a class action lawsuit against then-U.S. Attorney General Edwin Meese, alleging that the government's detention and release policies were in violation of the children's rights under the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause of the United States Constitution. So this lawsuit went on for some time, and a settlement was not reached until 1997. And that settlement has become known as the Flores Agreement. It set a national policy for the detention, release, and treatment of minors in the custody of INS. According to the legal nonprofit Human Rights First, the agreement imposed several obligations on immigration authorities in three categories. So first... The government is required to release children without unnecessary delay to parents. If parents aren't available, then other adult relatives. If they aren't available, then licensed programs willing to accept custody. If they can't place the children immediately, they have to put them in the least restrictive setting appropriate to their ages and any special needs. And they have to implement standards relating to the care and treatment of children in immigration detention, which the Flores Agreement says has to be safe and sanitary. Now, part of what you probably saw in the viral video of the government lawyer arguing about what that standard means is that the Flores Agreement does not enumerate every single aspect of safety and sanitization. And so you have a role for courts in interpreting this agreement. And from time to time, lawyers for unaccompanied minors coming into the United States have to file lawsuits to deal with these conditions. And so the lawsuit that you saw that viral video from over the weekend was started under the Obama administration. It is a couple of years old. 2016, I believe, is when it was filed. But by the time that it got in front of the United States District Judge, she was looking at conditions in 2017 after the Trump administration had come into office and started ramping up the number of children that were being held in custody. So the other part of this agreement is that these attorneys enter the detention facilities to assess the situation. And on the backs of this viral video where you have a government attorney saying, Soap is not required to meet the requirements of safe and sanitary, and the judges incredulous at this argument, as they should be. You have these lawyers coming out talking about what they saw in the detention facilities, which were babies under the care of their teenage mothers, children of all ages mixed together taking care of one another, the same food every single day, children that had not bathed since crossing the border. I mean, I think what's so important about that is that we have had children die in custody over the last four months, two of which died of sepsis, <laughs> one of which died from the flu, some of which, I think it was the 16-year-old boy, never even made it to a hospital. So all of this is building to where we're all having to face the just inexplicably awful treatment of children by our government. And it's, you know, I feel like many of you so powerless, like the only progress and small amount of hope I have since the, the separation of families at the borders is that I think we're all much better first in the organizations on the ground in those areas and, and who's helping and where to give money. So Races is an ama amazing organization. Beth, you retweeted that they just on donations from this weekend, paid 58 bonds and were able to reunite some families. But I know I can s speak personally, like 
donating when I know children my children's age are suffering that way. It feels so empty. I was on this Facebook page, and this woman kept saying, take to the streets and burn it down. And I just want to be like, I get it. Can you walk through the steps for me of should I get a babysitter for my three children? What should I burn down first? Like, I don't I don't even know what that means. Like, help me. I'm really I want to do something. And it just feels like everything is such an empty gesture in the face of suffering of children. I don't even know what I'm asking what I'm calling to ask my senator and representative for at this point. Am I asking them for funds for HHS but not ICE? Am I asking them to shut down ICE and the camps? What about children who really don't have an adult to be released to? What should we do with them? Release them to the street? I don't want to do that either. It's I'm just so struggling in the face of this. I think the Trump administration is correct that we have a crisis as an escalating number of Minors are coming to the border, especially unaccompanied minors. I think the Trump administration has exacerbated that crisis in its harsher approach to separating minors from their family members in order to prosecute those family members. I think we have been struggling for a couple of decades with what to do about this problem, and we're not getting better at it. The reason that Sarah Fabian, the government lawyer, was arguing about SOAP is because the district judge who heard this in the first instance, so lawsuit is filed in 2016, district judge hears the lawsuit. The district judge then enumerated some standards. She said, here's what safe and secure means. And she said it means things like providing soap and dry towels and showers, toothbrushes and dry clothes. It means that you have to turn the lights off so people can actually sleep instead of confining them on concrete floors under bright lights. And what the government wanted to do is appeal that order, but it wasn't a final order. She made that order as what's called interlocutory in our system. So it meant we're going to put this order on and then you come back and we're going to talk about this some more. There are other things to decide. So the government was trying to say that what she actually did was change the substance of the Flores Agreement. That's why you had an appeal to the Ninth Circuit with the government saying safe and sanitary doesn't on its own mean providing soap and dry towels, that this is new information to the government. And that's why the judges were so incredulous, as you saw in that video, like, you, you really think this is a, a new requirement on you, but that's that's how this conflict came to be. And I think part of what that suggests and part of what it suggests that we've been struggling with this for so long is that we have we're bringing tools to a problem that those tools weren't meant to solve. The Department of Homeland Security is not a social services agency. And when you have children at the border, those children are not terrorists. And you need to bring a different set of tools. And so over time, the Department of Health and Human Services has played more of a role in the unaccompanied minor program. I don't think you can switch from INS and CBP and ICE over to Department of Health and Human Services and kind of back and forth and one have any sense of who's in the government's custody, under what conditions, and how they'll be reunited with family members. We see the record-keeping nightmare that's being created by all of this. I, I just feel like we need to approach the border 
in a new way and in a way that is less tied to Homeland Security and more tied to the humanitarian issue that's being presented. One of the worst parts of the article is where the lawyer says, you know, there were 200 children. They couldn't tell me where they were or where they had been sent. And that's what keeps me up at night. When the sick, dirty, neglected children are not the worst of the problem, it's the children we've lost and don't know where they are. And I think the political reality is we could all sit down tomorrow and say we've been using border enforcement like we're trying to prevent terrorism and that's what's created this crisis along with a surge of migrants trying to escape political turmoil, gang violence, whatever. But even if we all decided on which agency we think is best suited to do this, that agency is still going to be run by the Trump administration, and they have lost all trust and credibility with millions of Americans because of family separation, because of this reporting. So to me, that's another huge problem is we can't get to a solution because one party at the negotiating table has lost all credibility with millions of Americans because why should I believe even the Department of Health and Human Services is going to have the best interest of these children? Like, it's it's just really hard. I think as we consider how to talk to our elected representatives about this, for a long time, lawmakers, when faced with questions from the public, Whether you are concerned about having too many people coming into the country or whether you're concerned about the conditions that we're placing these folks in when we detain them, lawmakers have have answered by saying, well, what we need is comprehensive immigration reform. And I believe that we do need comprehensive immigration reform, but I believe that's a different question than what we're talking about with unaccompanied minor children, because this isn't about whether we have a B visa or an L visa or whatever alphabet soup of ways that we invite people into the country. This is really, to me, a distinct problem that needs to be tackled on its own terms, where we are not thinking about how many folks we accept into the country. We are just talking about the issue that is presented when a child comes to our border either without an adult who is related to and a custodian of that child or in circumstances in which our government decides to separate them from the people that they came with. And I don't think our government ought to be doing that. But even if it is, we we are going to have some children who come here that have to enter into federal custody for some period of time. Can we solve that problem without getting into everything else? Can Can we say this is urgent enough that it deserves the attention of our legislators? Can we stop using the excuse that what we need is some kind of grand bargain on immigration and just get this done? Because to me, this is just ripping at the very core of what we believe as Americans about who we are. And it is, and you know, we've had lots of conversation on the podcast about how this is exactly who we are historically. We've done this to lots of different populations. Let's stop. This is a contained circumstance where we can stop and we should do that because we have to decide what our values are when it comes to children who are not American citizens. (laughs) When a child comes to our country, are our values about how we treat children different? Mine are not. You know, like I'll just raise my hand. Mine are not. Okay, so maybe let's let's. Pull that for a second, right? Do, do we really believe that children are undeserving of anything 
because they aren't American citizens. Because I don't hold children responsible for the sins of their parents. I don't care where they came from. As a mother, I I just want us to agree on how we're going to treat children. And I don't, you know, I got into a big, long Facebook discussion over the weekend. Lots of our listeners chimed in. I think some people's favorite hobby is to follow my personal Facebook feed. I don't do it very much, but I did get into it this weekend. And for me, it's not... This is not a subjective standard. Are they better than what they left? Mm-mm. No, that's not good enough for me. And as is totally unsurprising, whenever we talk about children in particular, separate of the citizenship issue, everybody has to drag it like the dead horse back to the battlefield of abortion. Well, you don't really care about children because you're pro-choice. And I just can't do it anymore, y'all. I can't do it. I can't do it. And, you know, I always say, like, when we're zooming out, when we're talking about our book, when I say we're talking about the principles, and I think you're wrong, but I'm listening, I always say I have to zoom out and think this person loves their children as much as I do. This person wants what's best for children like I do. But, damn, if we aren't in a place in America where we can't even get to that because we have to fight about abortion because before we can talk about how we're treating these children at the border. It's exhausting. I'm tired. I'm upset. I don't want to do this anymore. I just want to t- I just want us all to decide how we're going to treat the children in front of us right now. And it's like we can't even do that. It feels so hopeless sometimes. I'm just trying to be honest. I'm just trying to keep it real. It feels really hopeless. That's why the only thing that does give me some hope are these organizations I know are on the ground doing the work. And supporting them as best I can, just short of moving to Texas, which I did think about this weekend. I appreciated Glennon Doyle's tweet over the weekend about how she really wants these 25 people running for president to stop for a second and try to fix this, especially since so many of them are members of the United States Senate. And I understand how difficult that is and how pie in the sky that must feel to some of these folks and how their answer would be, I have to run for president because we clearly need a new administration to stop this. I also think, though, that lawmakers have told us this problem is so big and complex and hard. And it is those things, but it is not, I think, as big and complex as hard as they make it sound. And I really do want people to roll up their sleeves and treat this as an urgent issue that they get on right now. And stopping the family separation policy was not enough. We still have these kids in these conditions. And I I just we've been at this since the 1980s. It's getting worse. Let's fix it. Yeah, I'm not prepared to pat myself on the back because we stopped strip searching children. My standard is higher than that. Again, I don't care if the child is a citizen. I don't care. Which agency takes care of it? I don't care if it's state, federal, local, nonprofit. It seems like we should be able to agree on the basic level of treatment of children within the borders of our country. And a component of that, I'm thrilled that these ICE raids were postponed. If I am involved in any way, if I have any sphere of influence whatsoever in Washington, D.C. right now, I want a plan for children, assuming that they're going to do those raids, which I wish they would not. I do not think they should do that. But if that's going to happen, there needs to be a plan for children. Part of what I saw over the weekend in some of the articles I was reading about those raids is that 
Those raids are difficult and they are dangerous and kids hide in closets and they can take the adults and then later find that there were children in the house. I mean, there are so many aspects when you start messing with families in the way that our government is deciding to mess with families. We're going to have more and more situations where we're bringing the wrong tools to a problem. And so decide that in advance, you know, just figure it out. Prioritize this issue. That is all I'm begging for. Just prioritize these kids. If we say we are a nation that is about families and children, we are not showing it right now. But I think for some people, we the answer is we're a nation of laws. And that's more important to me. And I think we have to face that reality. That some people, this is not the most important thing to them. That for a lot of reasons of personality and psychology and life experience, some people are willing to prioritize law and order above the treatment of children. Not because they're cruel and they're child abusers, but because they feel like you have to make trade-offs. I think if that's where you are, I understand. It is lawless to treat children the way we are treating these children in my view. And so we have to have a conversation about what our laws require. And that's what the courts are deciding. And our laws, I don't see a place where what's the point of being a law and order country if the laws are not there to protect people on the most basic level. And to me, that's what children are, right? If if you cannot bring a set of values to helping children be safe and healthy and, and feel a sense of psychological security in the form of love, then I don't I don't know what the rest of this is for. Well, they're going to say that the laws are for citizens and those children aren't citizens. The laws are to protect the citizens of the nation and they're not citizens. Yeah. And I don't I don't know how to have that conversation past that point. If we can't if we can't get to children are not responsible for their own citizenship. But we can't get to that point. We can't agree on dreamers. We can't have a basic conversation about children are not responsible for their citizenship because Children grow up to be adults, and then they bring other people with them, and then we're back where we started, and that just means any more, even more black and brown people that I don't want here. I'm sorry. That's not very nuanced, and I'm not giving a lot of grace, but that feels like where the conversation goes about dreamers. Well, and I think this is an illustration. You know, we get asked a lot about this topic in connection with our espousal of the need to talk to one another in more compassionate ways. And it does run out at a point for us. Now, that doesn't mean that I start treating people who disagree with me about this as though they're monsters, in part because Sarah said that's not effective. There's nothing effective about that just enhances the cycle, right? There is not a good answer here. We're at an impasse and children are getting caught in it. That's the reality. It's not about choices about children. It's about choices we don't want to make, and children are the collateral damage, just like they always are. In education, in war, and in immigration. We don't want to make the hard choices or compromise or give up something that's important to us, and because they can't advocate for themselves, they become the collateral damage. All this bullshit we always spout in policy discussions and in our own lives about how children are the most important thing. It's bullshit. It just is. When push comes to shove and adults have to make hard choices, the last people they're thinking about on a grand level is children. This is a horrible story. We're both emotionally invested in it, as you can probably tell. We don't have a great answer except keep donating, keep telling your representatives this is not okay. 
We are going to talk about another horrible story now, which was the E. Jean Carroll piece published in New York Magazine over the weekend about the horrible men in E. Jean Carroll's life. It was a brilliantly written piece. Heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching. Among the horrific stories that she tells about men in her life, she includes very specific allegations that Donald Trump raped her in a department store dressing room in the mid-90s. And it's just weird to me, Sarah, how that made a splash for about 10 minutes and we were on to other things. When I think the way she tells this story so clearly demonstrates her interest in telling it truthfully. She's very honest about what she does and doesn't remember. She's very honest about how for the beginning of this encounter, she sort of laughed through it and was confused in her own mind about what was happening. She talks about how attractive he was when she like you if you were crafting this story as a lie, it would be a much more dressed up version. I don't believe that women just do that very often anyway. But if you were crafting this as a lie, I think you would make the details so much more favorable to a clear narrative than she did here. It just felt so honest to me in the way that she talked about it. And it is clearly not an outlier in terms of the behavior that we've heard about him from lots of women. And I'm struggling just just like the situation at the border. Like, when does America care about how human beings treat each other? That's like, I just feel like we're in this awful trap of being unable to care about really basic fundamental values. So we should say that she does have corroborating testimony from two of her friends that she told at the time, but that they were not able to get any sort of video surveillance from the department store to confirm her accounts, if that's stuff you care about after reading her account or thinking through why she would say all of this now <laughs> for any other reason than to just tell her story. But my favorite thing is that he basically said, I don't remember her, as if that is in any way dispositive. I mean, like, am I supposed to believe beyond, again, let's not forget, we're not just talking about the testimony of other women. We're talking about the words of Donald Trump himself, which is you just grab them by the pussy and kiss them, right? So this is exactly what she describes. And to say, well, I don't remember it. It's just, to me, there's so much contained, or I don't remember her, so much contained in that, the layers of how you fundamentally misunderstand sexual assault, of how that saying that you wouldn't remember a moment like this almost further proves that you are the type of individual who would perpetuate a crime like this. It just... It made me so physically ill, the whole story, and particularly his response to it. I saw a statistic over the weekend about how a pretty good percentage of people thinking about voting for Donald Trump in 2020 think that these allegations are credible. Not hers specifically, but like the group of allegations against this president for sexual assault. 
there is a good chunk of people thinking about voting for him that believe them. So it's not just that we're in this universe of fake news versus real news and everything that doesn't agree with my perception of the world is a lie. It is that we do have a sizable group of Americans who are willing to say, well, that is just the price of having some policies that I care about. And I take that back to what we were talking about at the end of the conversation about the border, then we have a real crisis, right? If we can't kind of circle around, our leadership is required to have some basic principles. And one of those principles is that you don't rape women. Or neglect children. Or neglect children. Can we start there? You don't neglect children and you don't rape women. Those seem like really good places to say these are our expectations as a voting public in America. When you strip away all even pretension of moral leadership and you say the only thing America cares about is America and everything is transactional, then it shouldn't be that surprising that that's where we end up, right? Because what we have as far as leadership at the very top of our government is someone who says winning is the only thing that matters, everything is a transaction, and America's interest is what comes first. There is no objective moral framework for how we participate in the globe, you know. This seems like the likely outcome to me when you have that. Now, that being said, as we shift to compliment the other side, I hope everyone is sitting down. We are going to talk about what happened with Iran over the weekend, which was there was a military strike planned. It was called off from the reporting because... President Trump was uncomfortable with the cost of life. He felt it was disproportionate. It was they were, The reporting is that 150 people would be killed, and he felt like that was disproportionate to the downing of an unmanned drone. Now, I cannot bring myself to compliment him, considering the reporting from New York Magazine and another woman accusing him of rape. So I'm going to compliment Tucker Carlson. Because everyone is saying that Tucker got on the phone with the president and then got on his show and said, this is all John Bolton. John Bolton's a tapeworm. He's the worst. Don't listen to John Bolton. And that's what turned the tide. So I'm a compliment Tucker Carlson. Good job, Tucker. That was hard. I don't mean to be such a downer today, but I'm kind of holding my breath about this because there are people basically trying to goad the president into military action against Iran telling him that you have to mean what you say and you can't tell the world that this president is going to tolerate attacks on the United States, even though it is a drone, you know, and people shouldn't shoot down our drones. Okay, I agree with that. But the president rightfully considered the fact that the possibility of casualties against actual humans versus the shooting down of a machine is not a proportionate response. And I think the one really good instinct that this president has is trying to keep us out of prolonged military engagement. I hope that he leans into that instinct. Again, 
difficult to say given everything else that we've talked about, but I, I want to acknowledge that I think that instinct of his is right and I hope that he sticks with it and is not baited into a military conflict to settle a score that John Bolton has had in mind for a couple of decades. So who are you going to compliment this week? I would like to compliment Kate Brown, the governor of Oregon. She's someone that I've respected for quite some time. This is such a bizarre set of circumstances. The Oregon legislature is going to vote on a cap and trade bill, similar to bills that are existing in many states right now trying to deal with carbon emissions. And instead of showing up and voting no, which is the thing to do when legislation comes to your desk that you disagree with as a as a lawmaker, some Republicans in Oregon have decided they are not going to vote on this at all and have left the state. And so Kate Brown has said to Oregon State Police, I'm going to need you to go get them. And I'm going to need them to come back because the taxpayers here in Oregon expect us to do our work. They can vote no, but they're going to need to show up and vote. And that might sound extreme to put the state police on it, but this has happened in other states. It's the only thing you can do, right? You have to have your legislators showing up to do their work. Otherwise, this is going to drag on forever. There's going to be a special session that Oregon taxpayers will have to pay for. The state police have said, we have relationships with these people. This is not going to turn into a bad episode of cops. We are trying to negotiate getting these folks to work. A militia shows up in the middle of this on the side of the Republican lawmakers and shuts down the state capitol because of threats to Democratic lawmakers who show up. The Oregon GOP tweets out a picture that is not a picture of this militia. It's a picture of a different protest, but basically endorsing the militia showing up and calling Democrats cowards who are afraid of them. The whole situation is way off the rails in Oregon. And I'm just sending good vibes to Kate Brown, who has to figure all this out. Can I just say, too, there's been a lot of reporting on this that's like, oh, this is like what happened in Texas when the Democrats left the state of Texas. And no. The Democrats in the state of Texas left because there was a redistricting plan (laughs) that was going to dramatically reduce their power. It was going to draw lines that were unfair. And it was like it was jacked up. Okay, so I think leaving the state because you feel like there's a fundamental change to the way your body is going to be run and leaving the state because you just don't like the legislation is different. And I just need to get that off my chest. I feel like if you are unwilling to vote on a bill, then you need to be recalled because you don't want to be a legislator anymore. Voting on bills that you disagree with is about 50 percent of the job. It's part of why people elect you to go vote no and to make an argument and to propose something better. If you don't want to do that job, then you shouldn't have that title anymore. You shouldn't have that responsibility. If I were an Oregon voter, I would want to relieve these folks of their duties. That's what happens when I don't show up to work. Right. I get fired. That's what ought to happen to these people. Next up, we're going to be talking about the trend of true crime in our current cultural landscape. And I think it is so appropriate because true crime is often described as an escape. And we need an escape from this downer of a news cycle. So that's what we'll be talking about next. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. 
The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. We wanted to have a conversation about true crime and its impact on society and particularly its political impacts after a discussion that we had while we were in Nashville in person. We just kind of got on a roll talking about our tendency as Americans to label people by their roles in a story. And it took us immediately to true crime. There is definitely a true crime moment right now. Okay, you can't open up your podcast player without seeing a proliferation of true crime podcasts. Netflix always has more true crime series. All the streaming services do. Now, 
as a disclaimer, part of this conversation is our frustration with the fact that they keep putting true crime podcast in the news and politics categories. Cut that out, iTunes. It's not news and politics. So that's part of a little bit of the conversation in our animus towards true crime podcasts is that they're in the wrong category. But what's really interesting is as you, if you look back at the history of true crime is that it's not necessarily a new obsession. People have always been interested in the sort of true crime newspapers and the tabloid rags that would deep dive into into high-profile murder cases or high-profile murder trials. But what's really interesting is when you look back over the 20th century is that that used to be sort of a guilty pleasure, right? You were rubbernecking. You were into the gory details, and it was kind of a shameful thing to be interested in. And I think that's the biggest change beyond just the new technology that allows anybody to tell a true crime story is that we don't seem to be ashamed of it anymore. Like, I think it's totally acceptable. It's even intellectual in certain circles to follow these stories, to be into true crime podcasts, especially after the behemoth in the room serial. It's also interesting that women are driving this trend for a lot of very complex psychological reasons. And I was amazed, Sarah, when we asked listeners about this on Instagram and Facebook, how many of our listeners were totally aware of the dynamic that drives women to this genre, which is that women use this as like how to not get murdered lessons, that women are fascinated by true crime because they are trying to absorb ways to keep themselves safe. Those types of podcasts, I feel myself playing out the like, okay, you should do this in this scenario. Listen, I still think back all the time to the episode of Oprah where the man got in the camera and said, do not let yourself be taken to the second location. Do not let yourself be taken to the second location. They're just going to kill you there. If they have to shoot you in front of a crowd of people, let them, but don't go with them to somewhere else thinking that's going to keep you safe. And I think those Lessons, like one of my favorite quotes I read in a bunch of articles I read about true crime, which we'll link to in the show notes, is this is from Darren Karp, the co-host of Oxygen's Martinis and Murders podcast. And here's the other interesting thing. Oxygen has gone like full on true crime. Like they changed their logo. Like that's all they do now. I think so interesting. Oprah doesn't own that channel anymore. I just want to clarify. But so she says it's been largely women driven. And she said people say that on a first date between a man and a woman, a man is worried about being embarrassed and a woman is worrying about being killed. The more they know about crime and the more they feel comfortable with it, it puts it into a scope that they're able to handle. And I think there's also this aspect of like, well, I'm not the only one scared all the time. Like, first of all, there's all these other people watching with me who are interested, too, and like, I'm not alone. And also, I'm not crazy to be worried about this all the time because look how much it happens. One of the things that Oxygen is doing that I feel really weird about is this whole martinis and murder idea. So I get we feel scared. This is a way for us to work through that fear and to maybe pick up some information that helps us live with that fear. I don't get... And isn't it a blast? What a delight. I don't understand that. I mean, and I, I'm i struggling with some cognitive dissonance for myself because I read like everything Mary Higgins Clark wrote when I was in high school. I loved murder mysteries. And then when I got pregnant with Jane, my older daughter, I completely lost my interest in any kind of fictional crime. I couldn't watch procedurals anymore. 
I had loved Criminal Minds because I think the psychology of it is really interesting. And I totally lost my ability to take any of that content in. So it's not like I'm better than anyone else here, but I'm I'm sort of struck by how the lack of shame around this, the fact that it's not guilty pleasure anymore is also making it like, well, let's like have a blast as we talk about this. And that troubles me. Okay, so I thought about this aspect a lot because I have had like evenings with my girlfriends where we've talked about this stuff, right? Where it was, I don't want to call it a fun conversation, but we we had an enjoyable evening together. We're talking about, I have two friends who are sisters who are particularly obsessed with true crime. I see you, Reagan and Jessica. And like... They come over and we'll talk about, I'll never forget one moment, Jessica was like, when I get to the pearly gates, the first thing I'm going to ask is, who really killed John Bonet? It haunts me. I want to know so bad. And I was like, that's it? That's the secret of human life you want to know is who killed John Bonet? Okay. It's cool. I love you. So, like, I think back to those conversations and I think about... There's a say it's not just that we want to talk about being scared and talk about how to stay safe, but there is a component of like safety itself and having that conversation among women. Right. So when you're ha- you're sitting around your girlfriends and you're talking about all these things, you're both working through some of your fears and how to stay safe and you're bonding and you are coming together to sort of process it in a lighter way, right? We process all kinds of things, really deep, dark things through pop culture and conversations. And often we use humor and a lightness to help us work through these dark things, right? And what's darker than the violence towards women that's prevalent in our culture, right? So here here we go. We're going to talk about the, the elephant in the room, which is my favorite murder. Okay, all of y'all who've already messaged me and be like, please don't say anything mean about my favorite murder. So I listened to several episodes of my favorite murder over the weekend. Okay, so here's the thing that I think's a little inaccurate. It's not totally a true crime podcast in that it's not a serial. It's not even an up and vanished. They're not trying to solve anything. Like sometimes the first 45 minutes of the show the first 45 minutes of the show are them just shooting the shit. Like they're not, this is, they, what they have done brilliantly is capture that dynamic of when you sit around your girlfriends and you talk about this stuff. Like they've, they've got it. They do it very well. And so I'm a little hesitant to like sweep them in with this, even though of course it is a true crime podcast and they spend a lot of the time talking about true crime and describing it to each other. But I don't know. I mean, I think what they've done is very smart It's not particularly for me, but I get it. And it's like now it's more of a community. It's the bonding over this topic. It's the, yeah, isn't it? Isn't this jacked up how women get murdered all the time and just trying to process it in a way that's not NCIS, right? But I think all these things, whether you're talking about serial or my favorite murder or law and order, fiction, nonfiction, cold case files, people that are trying to solve things like they're all trying. We're all trying to work through this really terrible thing in particular that women are not not safe in our culture. We're not safe in the world often. And so I think there's a I want to feel safe. I want to work through my anxieties about not feeling safe. 
I want to feel grateful that I am safe right now. I mean, that's a part of it, right? There's a lot going on here is all I'm saying. There's definitely a lot going on and a lot going on that I think is really interesting. And I think the ethical side of this is really interesting. How do you do this well? Because I don't think it's wrong to do it. And I don't think it's wrong to be somebody who is really into true crime. How do you do it well, I think, is a really hard question. How do we avoid things like Jeffrey Dahmer's hometown becoming a tourist website for that specific reason, which I think is not healthy for anyone? To me, how can we bring more consciousness to what's going on here is the political question. How do we know why we're listening? How do we know what the ethical issues are with telling these stories in this particular way? And how do we contain that as much as we can from bleeding into how we view the justice system and how we view other people? Because I think once you get immersed in a true crime story, There is a victim, right? And there is a perpetrator and there are detectives who are supposed to be doing justice. And if they aren't doing justice, then we're going to villainize them. It all becomes a story, right? And what we know about the justice system is that it is so complex and that people show up with their entire humanity, not just wearing the role in the particular story that you're hearing about. Well, but I do think the one thing you can say is that When you say what we know about the criminal justice system, for a lot of people now, that comes from True Crime Podcast. And they and many, many of these stories, podcast streaming services have done a service by moving away from the black hat, white hat and saying the system is not awesome and it gets a lot of things wrong. And so I think there is a like there is a real public service component to a lot of these stories because they're. including serial, which is like breaking open and saying and making a murderer, some of this stuff isn't done properly. Sometimes the system's jacked up. Our criminal justice system has problems. And let's use this one particular story to illustrate that. And I think that's good. I think that's really good. I agree with that. I think it's just, in my mind, you have to bring a level of observation to how you're taking this in and what you're doing with the information. Because even though the system is jacked up sometimes, that also doesn't mean that it's jacked up because this one detective had it out for someone or because this one county sheriff's office is too cavalier about certain kinds of people. And I that's what concerns me about how we analyze what we learn from true crime, that it still remains very personal when I think a lot of what goes on in the justice system that's concerning is really systemic. That's why I appreciated season three of Serial more than season one or two. When they camped out in a courthouse and said, over and over and over, here are the trends that we observed. That's harder to listen to because it doesn't get you really attached to specific characters, but it's also more representative of what the major issues are in the justice system. And, you know, with Serial, I think there is, it's not just an argument, it's the family themselves of the victim saying this was traumatizing for us. There was a really good article, again, we'll link it in the show notes, called Don't Use My Family for Your True Crime Stories. And this one was talking about the murder of her cousin. And she said, I wish that the audiences and creators of these shows would give a little extra thought to how the dead woman, because it's almost always a woman, at the heart of the story is treated in the telling. Is she treated like a human being, had more life left to live with people who loved her, who will never be the same because of her loss, or is she reduced to a gory crime scene photo? And a plot point in a story about a man who doesn't deserve anyone's fascination. And that's what's so hard. So I think when you're doing those, even if your best 
motivation as you're trying to expose the systematic problems inside the criminal justice system. It's like, is it a cold case that needs attention? Because I think there are really good examples of that, like the keepers. I freaking love the keepers. Did you see the keepers? Mm -mm. Oh, it's so good. It's about the murder of a nun in the 60s. And these women, these women who were her students who are now like retired in their 60s and 70s are trying desperately to bring attention to this, to find out who killed her, to get the evidence they need. And it it gave it, it sh, you know, it's shown a spotlight on them. And there's lots of stories like that where the family reached out and the family's not getting anywhere. And they're saying, I need somebody to pay attention to this so that I can find out who killed my loved one. And so I think that's obviously like that's like a whole genre into in itself. And I think that's really powerful is when you're using a true crime story, especially if the victim's family is asking for help in trying to solve the murder and like these cold case issues. It's really complicated because I think that there are great examples like that. I think there are also plenty of examples where it's almost like we've decided that if you are murdered, you've given consent or you've waived your right to object to your life being public. You know, like if if you're killed, then you're going to become a celebrity whether you want to or not. People are going to analyze the details of your life and... A family might be on board with that because maybe it helps them grieve. But think about the person's friends. I mean, so many people get traumatized by crime. This is what I'm trying to say. So many people get traumatized by crime. And we all have different ways of processing that trauma. And making a podcast that talks about it that then ends up getting lots and lots of attention. I think there's so much potential for second and third and fourth waves of trauma coming to people who are already traumatized. And that is what concerns me. Again, I don't think it's that this is that that it, there's anything wrong with making or listening to this kind of content. But I do think we ought to be having conversations about that. And if I were involved in making this content, that would be just at the very forefront of my mind. So I will say that there are times when I do think making this content is wrong. Looking at you, Payne Lindsay. Everybody's favorite true crime podcast host, Punching Bag. He hosted Up and Vanished. Did, did you ever listen to Up and Vanished? No, I can't. I'll just tell you. I'm, I'm going to say no to probably everything that you ask me other than cereal because this kind of content is just psychologically not good for me. I have nightmares. I do not like fear. I don't want to be afraid. I don't want to think about any of this happening to my children. So this is just not a way that I can handle working out the world. Well, this guy's real unpopular <laughs> with a lot of people. And, like, this is a quote from the show when he explains the genesis of the series. Like a lot of people, I had been pretty obsessed with the podcast serial and the Netflix series Making a Murder. And I thought to myself, what if I made one of those? So I literally just went to Google and started searching. Okay. No. False. Bad. <laughs> like, and then he, they, they solved the first series. They solved it. Like, now, could you argue it's because he brought some attention to it? Maybe. But they solved it. It wasn't anybody he was looking into. And then he kept doing the podcast. Like, why are you still talking, friend? They figured out who did it. So I think this, like, there are there are situations in which people are just trying to exploit this trend, exploit a story. And it's gross. And we can all see it's gross. And, like, cut it out. There are good reasons to make true crime. There are grayish reasons to make true crime. And then there are just bad reasons. And I'm going to include Up and Vanished in that in that category. Well, that makes sense to me. And I do not like turning these stories into T-shirts and walking tours. 
the commoditization of these tragedies really bothers me. And I think the zooming out thing that bothers me the most is I feel like this perpetuates viewing other people around us as characters. And when we do that, it has enormous political implications. I think that this might help explain part of what we talked about in the first segment of the show. When you see people one dimensionally, it is easier to ignore their suffering. I'm not even going to go into the desensitization to violence that I think a lot of us have because of all of this. Just labeling a child at the border as migrant, I think, puts on a character around that child that changes what we think is important for them. And I feel like when we spend so much of our time in real stories, these are real things that happened, it's not fiction, and we put people into these slots as characters, even when the stories are told brilliantly, where those characters have lots of different traits and are really complex, I still think it kind of adjusts our brain's capacity for complexity. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. 
that's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Now, I will say the flip of that, though, is, and I think this is another sort of important component of the True Crime Podcast, is when people decide to tell them their own stories, and then they're flipping that, right? They're saying, I don't want to be a character anymore. I want to be the damn narrator because it's my Mm -hmm. story. There's a really great editorial in the Washington Post about a woman who participated in criminal which I'm just going to go ahead and put it in its own subset because I think it's different and it's so good. I love Phoebe Judge and her Phoebe Judge voice so much. Okay, but this woman came on Criminal to talk about her stepfather who was a stalker. And she says, telling my story on a public platform has also made me feel I finally have a voice to speak from a place of power, not victimhood. As a victim, I had lost my autonomy. During the years of my stepfather's harassment, I had no say in where the frightening narrative would lead. And so I think that that aspect is... Really positive. I started thinking about a lot of this because I listened to The Root of Evil on the way to our strategy session, bulk binge listened, which is ill-advised. Don't do that. It's a very intense podcast. I I'm, would probably not listen to it. Like if I could go back and talk to Sarah on the way down and be like, don't do that. You'll regret it. But it's the it's a family telling their own story, which I think is a totally different thing when the people involved in the story are saying, we want to we want to tell it. We also want to recommend Anna LeBaron, friend of the pod, she has a new podcast about her own personal experience called Daughters of the Cult, daughtersofthecult.com, if you want to check that out. So, I mean, I think that's like a totally different thing. The only question I have about people telling their own story is, again, we're all just human narrators. And so I feel like, how do you wrap around that, too? What kinds of questions? Maybe that's the answer for me. Like, if I'm going to consume something that I feel strange about... Can I start and end with questions for myself to try to keep it in context? And I think that is the risk of the true crime trend overall, right? Is because there's so much content and it's it lends itself so much to sort of binge listening or binge watching. You're just taking in all this without thinking about it and questioning it and just... Well, that was an enjoyable. I mean, that's how I when I got into criminal, man, I just was like one after the other, after the other, after the other. You're like kind of chasing that thrill you feel when listening to them for the first time. And I do think that's dangerous. And I think that was the impetus or motivation for having this conversation overall on our podcast is we've we've been having these sort of bigger cultural conversations. And what are they what does this trend mean? And how does it lead us to think about each other, our relationships? And I think that's something to really carefully consider. If you like true crime podcast, if you've only listened to a couple, is what are we doing here and are we doing it consciously? I think that's that's a good place to to end. Let's do our let's keep doing our true crime thing, y'all, but let's just do it consciously. 
what is on your mind outside politics, except for the way that Skype has been messing with your mind the whole time we've recorded. Y'all, we all need to know this. Skype has been messing with Beth. So send bad thoughts to Skype or good, good thoughts so they work it out. I don't know which kind of thoughts you should send. I've been thinking deeply about the Enneagram. I'm reading Beatrice Chestnut's The Complete Enneagram, 27 Paths to Greater Self-Knowledge. Now, listen, if you are not an Enneagram person and are kind of rolling your eyes right now, I feel you because there is something deep in me that anything that feels like a fad or that everybody else is talking about, I sort of reject it out of hand. So I get that impulse. I do not have the fear of missing out that you have, Sarah. I have the... Ugh, get out of here with your cultural phenomenons kind of attitude about things. I find the Enneagram so profoundly helpful in understanding other human beings and understanding myself principally better so that I can interact more effectively with other human beings that I decided to deep dive into the Enneagram. So I got this book, Sarah, after our trip to Nashville because I was thinking about how different the two of us are in terms of personality. And I thought this is really going to help me think especially about myself in these situations where Sarah and I are working together. And as I've been reading it, I feel like I'm getting that information that I was desiring, but also really starting to understand my children better through the lens of what their Enneagram fixations might be. And it's just been very helpful, especially because Jane, my eight-year-old, is spending tons of time this summer in her room making art, which is wonderful. I also want her to live in the world a little bit. And I'm struggling with how much she wants to be alone in her room. And it's helping me to understand that she might be fixating at five on the Enneagram where kind of being by herself really centered on a task and on this creative expression is important to her. And so I'm just, I'm finding it helpful. I love the Enneagram. I have the opposite instinct, which is everyone's talking about it. Therefore, I must know everything, read everything, and participate in the conversation. So why we're so complimentary, such a good team. Yeah, I think it's massively helpful. You get the Ennea thought every morning, right? I do. And it feels like people are living in my brain when they write the Ennea thought. It's so good. It's such a good way to just every day just be like, check in, check in, check in with those instincts. I love it. Well, I have been thinking about my children and parenting a lot as well. I've been reading The Awakened Family, A Revolution in Parenting by, I hope I say her name right, Shafali Tosberry. She was on Oprah's Super Soul Mm -hmm. Conversation. And that's where I was like, I'm going to read this book. So I started reading the book. And it's just like, oh, How to Raise a Human Being. Is that the name of that book? Another really great parenting book. We'll put the links to both in the show notes. And it's just so hard to challenge all this traditional parenting culture that says your children are trying to manipulate you. They will become beast if you're not on top of them all the time. They don't actually want to do well. They they will default to bad, terrible, wild behavior if you're not on top of them all the time. And, you know, they're going to try to get out of things and they're going to push the line. I mean, just all this like narrative we have about kids, right? That if you aren't on them like white on rice, then everything will fall apart. And, you know, she really pushes on that. And she says like, if there's a problem, the problem is you. (laughs) And you need to think about your piece of the problem. And it's not that you're inconsistent in your discipline. Like that's not the problem. And I just, 
Oh, man, it's just so hard. Okay, so if I'm struggling with screen time, am, am I the problem? And I think, well, yeah, I talk about the podcast all the time, how I can't regulate my own screen time. And so I'm telling my 10-year-old, my 8-year-old, you would have your face in a screen all the time if you could, but then not really putting any boundaries in place for family time for my own screen usage. It's just really hard. It's like a lot of hard self-reflection. That's what kids are here for, I think, just to make you have hard self-reflection. It's true. I realize more all the time that the best parenting that I can do is just working on myself, just being a better person here. And that is no fun. And part of the Enneagram that's no fun is the same thing. It's like calling out, here is what uh, the author of this book refers to as the shadow. Here's the part of me that I do not love and that I don't want anyone to see and I don't want to talk about. I certainly don't want to give convenient labels to so that I recognize it as it comes up. But I think that's what we have to do. So Richard Rohr's email, I just want to read this paragraph. It says, the feminist theorist Bell Hooks claims that love is the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another spiritual growth. The will to extend yourself, to push past your comfort level, to work really hard. That means doing things you never thought you'd do and may not particularly want to, but you do them. You stretch and extend because someone needs you to so that they can grow. It's so hard though, Richard Rohr and Bell Hooks. It's so hard. It's a big ask, but it is the ask. Oh, if our spiritual efforts are aimed at loving these people better, well, that alone is and should be enough. (sighs) Some big stuff, man. It's big stuff. But I love it, and I think it's important. And, you know, Richard Rohr always says that it's through the particular acts of love that we understand sort of the universal flow of love. Things got really deep all of a sudden. This episode is a roller coaster. (sighs) Thank you for being on the roller coaster with us. We will be back here on Friday to talk about what I imagine will be the roller coaster of the Democratic debates. We did not think this through. We should have planned a more relaxing episode before four hours of Democrat debate midweek, y'all. I thought the true crime would be. Why did I think that? I don't know. Oh, man. We should have talked about something like super light. But I guess that's not really what we do here. Have a wonderful week. We will commemorate some exciting things with you on The Nuanced Life on Wednesday and then be here on Friday to talk about the debates. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Cherry Haas, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.